Welcome to the Lubbers Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. We're following the Aubrey Matron novels of Patrick O'Brien, and we're currently dipping into part two of the Mauritius Command. Ian, can you catch us up to where we've been and maybe a little peek as to where we're going this episode? Last time we got started with the Mauritius Command as Jack and Stephen got together again after a long while on shore, putting together a squadron that was going to be Jack Aubrey's first command over other officers. Jack Aubrey's in acting command over these officers. He's a Commodore. He's gone to Cape Town and he's charged with basically kicking the French out of the Indian Ocean, trying to take possession on behalf of Britain of Mauritius and La Réunion. We encountered new ships for Jack and the squadron to sail in, and we encountered some new characters, including this slightly odd character, Lord Clonfort, who I think we're going to hear about some more. So this week, Mike, I think looking ahead, we're going to see how these campaigns are going to work out, how the dynamics are going to play out between Jack and the other captains that he has under command, and what role Stephen's going to play as an intelligence agent and political advisor to Jack and to the rest of the squadron. But Mike, you and I have been talking a bit as we've gone through Mauritius Command about how the experience of reading it for us has been a little bit different. I'm going to say even in in some ways a bit less satisfying to begin with than we had when we were reading HMS Surprise and Post Captain before that. It very definitely, and I find that um, I had a little bit harder time kind of getting into it, and I and I wasn't quite sure what was up with that. I think you know we had talked last mm-hmm. week about how we jumped so far ahead, but it was more than just that. Uh, it, there seemed to be something new. I remember in Master Commander, it was a bit of all the nautical terms and jargon which was new to me, and and this was somehow different as well to me. Yeah, it's almost like there's a strand of military-style writing that I think Patrick O'Brien might have been reaching for here. We got quite a lot of the detail of strategy and balance of forces. Um, We've got quite a lot of writing about control of strategic locations. We're going to talk this week about a battle for one of those strategic locations. We've got quite a lot of how how the different forces of the Army and the Navy Right. combine or not and how they overcome you know obstacles like obstacles of, of supply and resources and getting through terrain and surf and it was almost like there was a military campaign novel in the style of a tom clancy you know a 19th century tom clancy going along in parallel with the more character-led stuff yeah that's it's so well put and you know o'brien with his different points of view the way he just kind of gives you bits and pieces um i think he's he's obligated to give more detail here. And he does give more detail, but occasionally I would still find myself wondering exactly where I was or where I was. It was, yeah. it was looking back, no surprise that instead of just seeing the layout of, of the rigging of the, of, of the ship, that we've got a map in the front of this book with good reason. Yes. <laughs> Again, just like a Tom Clancy novel, you know, this is where the <laughs> You know, this this is where the Russian bunker is. We get the map of this is where the French uh, bases are, where the French um, concentrations are. Yeah, I, I, boy, I desperately wanted Tom Horn in real time to say, follow me along, Tom, <laughs> as I go paragraph to paragraph. Can I see the little dotted line of where are we now? And and I guess that's the other thing. So many ships, French and otherwise English, and and so many people in different places at different times and different parts of islands. So it really um, 
you know, it's, it's again, another level of difficulty to, to follow along. And, and as you say, a different style, this military writing, Tom Clancy-ish take here from O'Brien. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, still with all of the O'Brien color and humor. So I, I didn't ever get the sense that I wanted to put the put the book down, but I was like you, know, I think, trying to put my finger on why is it that the experience of this is a bit different, and how and even why did Patrick O'Brien structure the novel in this way? We, I mean, we said last time this is a real campaign, um, but he's been in that situation before of telling the story of a real a piece of military campaigning as it unfolded. Right, right. I warmed up a lot as some old characters came on board, as there was more of the character-led writing interspersed with the military writing. And I'd go, ah, okay, I'm back home again. This is this is the Patrick O'Brien I know and love. And I was getting intrigued by the, okay, wow, this, this is going to be a pretty tough mission as I get to understand it a little bit more. And then I want to find out what happens, what happens on both fronts, military and character. Definitely. And we've got, I think, one of the reasons why we have this character, Lord Clonfort, in there is to give some of that interesting character rub. And we said last time in HMS Surprise, we were both you know, face palming and going, come on, Stephen, you don't have to put yourself through this pain with Diana. And it just seemed to be going on and it provided this really great tension in the book. What, what the heck was going to happen next with Stephen and Diana? And I think we're both feeling the same at this midway stage in the novel. What's going to happen with Clonfort? There seems to be no end to his ability to be awkward and uh, self-aggrandizing, but also quite capable in some ways. Right. And uh, it really keeps you fascinated. It does. It does. And and seeing him played, uh, not off against, but seeing he and Stephen's interaction and he and Jack's interactions and getting Stephen's point of view as we move forward here in the novel having Stephen spend so much time with him, getting those observations, which leads Stephen to a lot of self-reflection, which of course I love that as well. Yes. That's, that's home territory. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And with Stephen now acting as a colleague and a political advisor, he's not bound to these other commanding officers, which is all well and good because there's such a diverse set of different officers with different motivations. And Jack really needs Stephen to bounce this off of, and to, uh, and I, th- I think Stephen needs Jack as well as they try to figure out who these characters are, what's motivating them. Now you can notice that the subject of motivation comes up, I think, quite deliberately in different places in the text. Already earlier on in this story, we had Admiral Bertie talking about how he would quite like to be made a baronet, and he's kind of teasing um, Jack along with the idea that you know, wouldn't wouldn't your wife like to be Lady Aubrey? They're all pursuing in their different ways something about something a little bit selfish, honourably selfish, but selfish. Jack would really like to do a distinguished job in this first occasion where he's been placed in command over other captains. Bertie would like to be made a baronet and not have a hard life. <laughs> Harry Keating, the colonel, right? he's also, you know, it, he's a professional guy, but he's a careerist and he's got an eye to how things look. And he would like to do a good job as Lieutenant Colonel Harry Keating. And of course, that brings us to two really deep and interesting motivations. One is Lord Clonfort and one is Stephen. Yes. We're getting deep into Stephen's motivations in this novel, as well as kind of to his interior emotions, even even more so than when he was delirious and talking out loud to Jack before. But 
you know, Stephen seems to be driven, uh, and and we'll talk about this more later. But he's really kind of driven with, uh, we've got to do away with this tyrant Bonaparte and the, or the impact that he's having on the world. You know, he's continues to be that egalitarian, yeah. humanitarian in a way, in a funny way. It's funny. It's hard to say humanitarian and think of the look on Stephen's face and some of the things that come out of his mouth on the other <laughs> hand. <laughs> it's you're right. I love, I love mankind. It's just individual people. I can't stand pretty much all of them. <laughs> <laughs> right. So can, I, 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 I'm going to pick up the quote, if that's okay for a second. Yeah, please do. So we get this moment partway through the book. What Stephen's, he says, Stephen pays the quarter deck silently hating Bonaparte and all the evil he'd brought into the world. And then we have this series of muttered interjections that I guess he makes. Good only for destruction has destroyed all that was valuable in the Republic, all that was valuable in the monarchy, destroying France with demonic energy, this tawdry theatrical empire, a deeply vulgar man. He's talking about Bonaparte here, not Jack Aubrey. Nothing right. French about him. But and by the way, Stephen loves France and the French and French culture. Nothing French about him. Insane ambition. The whole world, one squalid tyranny. His infamous treatment of the Pope. Stephen's a Catholic. This Pope and the last, when I think of what he's done to Switzerland, to Venice, God knows how many other states, what he might have done to Ireland. The Hibernian Republic divided into departments and here he's thinking about what if the Napoleonic Code and all of its Ooh. controlling structure arrived in Ireland. The Hibernian Republic divided into departments, one half secret police, the other half informers. And again, we know Stephen hates the idea of an informer. Conscription, the country bled white. And a subaltern of the 86th, that's one of the court, Stephen's pale, wicked glare, full in the eye and backed away, quite shocked. Wow. So, and he's the only one who really makes a strong, morally driven speech to himself or anyone else about why they're there and what they're trying to achieve. This subject of people's motivation, I think, what you know, once again, our characters are in the uh, the Patrick O'Brien behavioral analysis lab. Right, right, very much so, and yeah. and very different. And we've had you know, many more characters and. You know, these characters that we've talked about that Jack is so dependent upon for his success. He doesn't get to so often go in and lead actions as he does get to plan and try to pull everybody on board and drive consensus and then watch it happen or not happen. And maybe that's a, a really good way of summarizing the problem that Jack has here. So he knows how to give orders. He thinks he has a good idea, a bit, a bit of insight into who's okay and who's not. And initially he thinks that Pym is okay and Clonfort is a mystery and Corbett was a brute and has been sent away. But I think we're going to see that Jack doesn't really have much insight into their motivation. He thinks he knows their characters and where they fit in the world of the Navy, but he's a little bit at a loss to know what's going to make them tick. So true. He really is looking at them kind of from that naval eye. You know, it's great that we have this this change in Jack and Stephen's relationship relative to that now. Whereas before, Stephen was kind of a member of the gun room and really would never talk to Jack about the fellow officers. Now, Stephen is Jack's political colleague and advisor. You know, he's not bound to the other commanding officers. And he knows that you know Jack's a little bit, well, not a little bit, perhaps a lot out of his depth in terms of 
of commanding other officers. As, as Jack said, I believe we talked about it last time that, yeah. you know, he's grown up on the ship. He knows all about commanding a ship, but really hasn't had that experience of commanding other officers. And Stephen, you know, keeps encouraging him to say, all right, then let's talk freely about it, brother. Open your yeah. mind to me. And Stephen shares his views as well. He does. And then they get into talking about the mission and Stephen's not just asking Jack what's going to happen next and how will the ship get along and where are we going to point our guns, so to speak, but he's asking about the whole squadron. And it's really telling that they have some of these conversations about the odds of success. Yeah. And although Jack's clearly clearly equipped to have the conversation, it's probably the first time they've talked about a, a campaign or about their, their professional life in quite this sort of big picture detached way. No question about it. And you almost subtly see Stephen kind of going into that role of, again, intelligence agent, political advisor saying, okay, now here's Jack Aubrey, my friend, but it's also Jack Aubrey, who is, I believe, one of the premier experts in this field. Who better to give me what the odds are, especially from the naval viewpoint? So all during the book, O'Brien has this happening, Stephen checking in. So what are the odds now? What are the odds now? What are the odds now? Early on, Stephen's asked Jack this, and Jack replies simply in terms of ships and guns, and only from the point of view of fighting at sea, they are rather against us, speaking of the odds. Mm. Then if you allow for the fact that we shall be more than 2,000 miles from our base while they are in their home waters with supplies at hand, why, you might say they are in the nature of three to five. So Jack is laying odds on the French that, you know, it's it's three to the English. The odds don't look good. Now, he qualifies that remark by saying, but all of this is very much up in the air. There's so many unknowns in the equation. For one thing, I know nothing of their captains and everything depends on them. Once I catch sight of them at sea, I shall be able to reckon the odds more accurately. Vintage Jack. Vintage Jack. Be, being at sea and with my uh, with my feet planted on the deck of a ship is the moment when I have all of my capabilities at my disposal. It does. And, and it's fascinating. Stephen says, oh, you mean, you know, kind of once you engage them in battle, Jack says, no. Even I can catch a, a, you know, a look from way far away. You know, I, I see how they set their sails. If I see how they do, you know, I'll know. I can sum up my adversary at that point. And, and that's, that is so, Jack. And, Bears an important uh, part of this story as it has in our prior ones. <laughs> That's right. I'm being reminded of a line ages ago in Post Captain, in the very beginning when the romances are starting to take shape between Jack and Sophie on the one hand and Stephen and Diana on the other hand. And one of the men, I think it might have been Stephen, can recognize the sound of one of the women. I think it might have been Diana from the way she played a tune on the piano. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> And that's that's the land-based world, and but this is the sea-based world where Jack can tell the, the the capabilities and the intentions of someone literally from the cut of their jib, from the way they handle their ship, even when it's just a nick in the horizon. Yeah, too true. So, what what, what does Jack do to to hasten this? Then he almost literally cracks the whip. He says, "I've got the people hard at it. I'm going to harry the arsenal, the shore-based supplies, until they wish me damned." And once they get to sea, of course, he's going to get the entire squadron working on gunnery because that's another classic Jack Aubrey theme that he wants to get them all at maximum efficiency with the accuracy and the rapidity and the confidence that they have in handling their guns. Yeah. And, And he finds himself so often up against, again, other captains who, 
go, you know, you know, using that gun too much, it really ruins the polish on my deck. Or <laughs> I don't want to have to pay for the shot out of my own pocket or you know, something like that. So this is a trait that interestingly seems to be very much jacked, but oftentimes not shared by other captains in, in the Navy. Indeed. And I think that we've been allowed to believe that Jack represents the best and what you might say the the most prevalent set of capabilities in the Royal Navy. And maybe one of the new things, and one of the reasons why we feel a little bit less excited by reading some of this book, is that O'Brien's really saying, do you know what? The Navy was pretty a big organization, and there were some people in it who weren't as dashing or as capable or as far-thinking in naval terms as, as Jack Aubrey. And just like any big organization, any big administration, there was some inertia and some conservatism and some outright corruption. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And we're seeing that. And it's that all of that is holding Jack back. Well, luckily, not everybody has, hasn't reached their level of incompetence, as, yeah. as Stephen often speculates in kind of an early version of the Peter Principle. Mm-hmm. And he forms early on an ally in this Lieutenant Colonel Keating. Uh, I was so thrilled when Jack is is there. He's been working his ships together. He gets in there and he has to get some men if they're going to try to set upon La Réunion. And Jack goes to convince Keating to commit the 400 or so English and Indian soldiers under his command. Um, and, and I loved Keating's response or, or Keating's really kind of his greeting to him and says, how delighted we were to see you coming in. We've been so cruelly bored on this dismal rock these last few months, reduced to tortoise races. Nothing to look forward to except the arrival of the main body next year. Nothing to shoot at except guinea fowl. <laughs> and then Jack kind of realizes, oh, this is just the guy I need. Jack instantly seized upon the opening and said, If we are of the same mind, Colonel, I believe I can do away with your boredom. I can offer you something better than guinea fowl to shoot at. Can you, by God, cry the soldier with a look as keen as Jack's? Oh, I love that part. (laughs) I rather hope something might be afoot when I saw you come ashore so quick. Another afoot line. Yeah. Yeah. And we got the Navy and we've got the Army. But here we have two commanders that bring that same kind of a little bit of that motivation to it and a little bit of that excitement for action. Definitely. And I, I, I like Keating and I'm sure that we're meant to like him. I'm a little bit reserved about my liking because the last person that, that I think we were meant to like was Canning, which was a whole other can of tuna back in, the, in HMS Surprise. And I think we're meant to like Keating. And so far, I think it's okay to like Keating. Yeah, he's I, Like you say, Mike, he's active and decisive. Lots of Patrick O'Brien's soldier characters are unsympathetic yes and i think i see that army officers at the time were there because of their privileged backgrounds you know people bought a commission in the army and right fancy regiments were very fancy places to spend your life but keating although i'm sure he is relatively privileged in terms of his social position manages to be professional as well and i really like the the maturity and the self-awareness that he has when he says there are only two things that make me hesitate. I hesitate as the officer commanding the troops on Rodriguez, not as Harry Keating. So he's got that bit of self-awareness to know that his instincts and the instincts that he has to have in the professional post that he has, that those are different. How much of a contrast is that <laughs> with Clonfort, who I think, oh my, God. Am- among other defects, has no clue of the difference between the personal and the professional. 
and no self-awareness and no maturity. No, and and this sort of black hole of the lack of self-esteem, which sort of drags anything that would be professional into it, and it gets eaten up by this black hole of, you know, I've got to be admired. I've got to outshine everybody else. I've got to I've got to be perceived as doing these almost fantastical things, uh, regardless of where reality is. And yeah. and he, as Jack, as you noted, he's done some good things, but we start to wonder. Oh, wait, we don't have to wonder, I guess, so much as you know what what drives him to that, and what else might that character flaw, that inability to separate, as you so well put it, the personal and the professional. You know, not having that. I, and I think we'll see that again in a number of commanders. We saw it earlier in the flogging captain. Yes. It just brings that authoritarian personality whenever he steps on the ship and you know drives his crew to near mutiny. And I think we'll see it in other ones in different ways. Yeah, for sure. And there's a telling moment that one of the early moments when Clonfort really embarrasses Jack Aubrey is when Corbett and Clonfort are together in front of Keating, and they, the two of them get into a big fight about where are we going to take these men from Rodriguez? Where are we going to land them? And Jack has to pull Clonfort to one side and say, this is not going to happen again, and especially not in front of an officer from another service. Well, and it's um, sort of the first tell here. Clonfort reacts so badly to the dressing down. And, and, and it's McAdam, Clonfort's surgeon on board his ship on the Otter, you know, confides to Stephen. He says Clanford gets these pains, these horrific pains, and Adam uh, McAdam tells him that it's brought on. It was brought on by Aubrey checking him, and that that Clanford always is trying to outdo his fellow officers. And then McAdam kind of deepens our understanding a little bit by telling him about how he has heard about Aubrey over and over again that whenever. Clonfort reads something about Cochrane, mm. uh, the real life Cochrane. Whenever he reads anything about Aubrey, you know, he's sort of reading it and he service gossip that he just can't help analyzing it and diminishing it and then magnifying it. And all always in reference to whatever Clonfort feels that he does. Uh, McAdam says, and it's very telling, he says, you know, the comfort cannot leave them alone any more than a man can leave a wound in peace. You know, this kind of psychological scab that Clonfort can't help but pick at continuously. Well, I mean, you do get a bit of sympathy for Clonfort then, thinking what what kind of a life must he be leading? And Yeah. That, that can't be a, a, a comfortable way to be. And whatever he's chasing and whatever resolution and glory he hopes for, when, when he gets there, I don't think it's going to help him, but well, we'll see. We'll see. So we are still worried about Clonfort and how he's going to continue to express this lack of maturity and self-awareness. We're quite happy that Keating is on the scene. He's one of the few, maybe besides pullings of the, of the commanding officers around that Jack is going to work well with and a slight spoiler. He's probably the only right, one who's going to right. turn out completely competent in this story. But off they go, right? They've got the troops from Rodriguez. They've got Keating aboard. They're going to sail to St. Paul on La Reunion and they're going to make a bit of a demonstration and see what they can do to take back this merchantman, the Caroline. Caroline? Caroline? Caroline, I guess. Yeah, I'm not sure either. <laughs> I think Patrick Tall calls her the Caroline. Okay, great. And already we get the first taste for Jack of the reality of having to put men into action and be detached from the action. And Stephen says... 
there is the strange look about you, brother, which is a, a very Irish way of saying, are you okay? There is the strange look about you, brother. A strange feeling too, said Jack. Do you know, Stephen, that in about one hour's time, the dust will begin to fly. And what I shall do is just lie there in the road and give orders while the other men do the work. It's never happened to me before, and I don't relish it, I find. Though to be sure, Sophie would approve. Ah, (laughs) Nicely, nicely done, Jack, right? Yeah, his bride would be very happy for this, but I, I can only imagine what a strange feeling that is for Jack to know everybody's going to be, you know, going in and you're going to be yeah. sitting there watching them because your duty is they are not on shore or not in yes. the midst of the action. And the major outcome of this, this doesn't take any territory. This They successfully take back the Caroline, but they don't take any territory. They have a spell ashore in this harbor. And most things about the, the attack are successful. The Caroline and the captured Indiamen are taken with little loss to the English. The French do send some troops. And Lord Clonford's very active and busy and blows up batteries and they destroy the tax records, which endears the local population to the English. They release some prisoners. And this is all great. But for two people, it's a really bad day. For the French general, right? it's a bad day because he sees this happening and he commits suicide. So he's got a professional, personal setback of his own going on there. And of course, Clonford, who's had such a great day, has one thing about it that goes wrong and it destroys the whole thing for him. Yeah, he's kind of up to his usual thing of let me get on shore even when everybody else can't. You know, I can I can land. The sea's picked up. And per Stephen's plan, he's blowing all this stuff up. But he sees something that he thinks is a public building, but it turns out to be where they're housing all the silk that they took off the Indian men. And the Indian men are back on their ships and they're talking to Aubrey. You go, oh my God, don't, no, not that. And boom, it goes right up into flames as they're watching through their their telescopes there. And Aubrey mentions it only in passing, doesn't, doesn't really call him down. He just asks why he decided to do it. And once again, this, uh, this sets Clomford off. Poor guy, almost poor guy. I mean, right. I mean, it's it's it was it was a stupid mistake of his. But what was more stupid, at least as as I read it, was to take it so much to heart and let it really rankle. And the great outcome of this is that um, Jack asks Corbett to take the retaken Caroline back to England and to take news. Of, sorry, back to the Cape and to take news of the victory to the Admiral. That means that Jack gets to promote Clonfort to post captain, which is the big professional step. And the result of this is that Clonfort's mad that it's Jack right. who got to make him a post captain. Right. Come on, guy, gift horses, mouths, you know. Oh my gosh, right. You, you're sort of, like you say, on the one hand, you're a little bit sympathetic. On the other hand, you want to say, oh, shut up. <laughs> what is wrong yeah. with you? <laughs> wow. It's interesting that after all this, I mean, it was a quick action. It was a very successful action. And and they, you know, I think we mentioned this in passing, that by virtue of the general's suicide, they, they actually got to have um, about a week on the island. So they get all sorts of intelligence. They have are in a great situation. And when they're back on board ship and, and kind of heading out, you know, Stephen again asks Jack, so where do you think we stand now? And, uh, you know, Jack says, he says, basically, you, know, you remember how uh, I said three to five against us before. 
Now I'd say they are evens or slightly in our favor. Ooh. Fascinating how you know, even the first action starts to embolden everybody, and 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 they have had some substantial gains here. And I like the fact that we've we've started to set this little expectation that Jack's going to keep track of the odds, and they're getting better, and we hope that they're going to get better with each development. A little bit. This reminds me of the the ongoing thing in the Magnificent Seven. You, Brenner, holding up another finger to say we have one more, and we've started that same sort of count up here with the odds were against us, and now they're even. And I sense that O'Brien's hoping to draw us into the idea that bit by bit we're going to overcome. Right, right. Before, you know, we started out with these four heavy French frigates. Now we've got one of them, yeah. <laughs> and we've got a, a bit of a foothold in terms of turning the local population towards England. No, none of the local population was harmed. It was only public buildings. Everybody was treated respectfully. It's kind of coming together here. It is. And I'm sure that looks as good to Stephen as the tyranny of Napoleon looks bad to Stephen. And it's striking that Stephen and Clonfort get to express opinions about what it means to be in authority. And um, I remember there's this quote of Stephen describing Lord Clonford. I can't remember. This is him talking to Jack or him writing in his diary. Um, he derived his notion of himself as a lord from people who have had to cringe these many generations to hold on to the odd patch of land that's their living. And on the other, although half belonging to them, half belonging to the people that he's lord over, he's been bred up to despise their religion, their language, their poverty, their manners and their traditions. A conquering race in the place of that conquest is rarely amiable. The conquerors pay less obviously than the conquered, but perhaps in time they pay more heavily in the loss of humane qualities. So the fact that we're managing to have a humane and benign conquest, little by little, of Mauritius, I'm sure is a a positive thing from the Stephen Maturin and therefore also the the Patrick O'Brien view of the world. Yeah, well spotted. And that really does give us a little bit more depth of insight into Clomford's character and start to understand a little bit kind of coming from these different worlds and being, it sounds like a little bit betwixt and between both of them. Yeah. He doesn't know really where he fits into society. He's got this air of being a a bit defensive about his position. Although perversely, he really plays on the, the Lord thing and on his appearance and his manner and his crew are almost like his retinue. Right. There's this strange streak of vanity that suggests this really, really deep insecurity as well. Right. Well, Stephen makes the observation maybe a little bit later that most of the time when you have a gentleman officer, his his fellow officers are also gentlemen, but Clomford doesn't have that. And he has these people sort of fawning around him and Mm. really worries about that a bit. And and as you say, all this ostentatious, showy... uh, silliness. So we've got this fairly direct and pointed criticism in the minds of Stephen and any conversation of of Clonfort. And Stephen's also reflecting a little bit on Jack. I don't think there's ever going to be a part of any of these stories where Stephen's not musing on Jack right. and his his weaknesses or his strengths and how he's maturing as a person. And Stephen's spotting that Jack has changed and that's a bit to do with authority as well. Um command of captains is, is, is changing him. And he's also noticing personal changes that marriage has changed Jack. And we saw a bit of that in the opening chapters that we talked about last week, mm-hmm. lack of animal spirits and appetites, which is a fairly delicate way of talking about Jack's libido. <laughs> right. 
Uh, this is this quote here. I'm no friend to adultery, says Stephen, which surely promises more than it can perform except in the article of destruction. But I wish that Jack could at least have some temptation to withstand. His more fiery emotions, except where war is concerned, have cooled. And no doubt this loss is a natural process that prevents a man from burning away altogether before his time. But I should be sorry if, in Jack Aubrey's case, it were to proceed so far as a general cool indifference. Now, this is Stephen taking a different point of view. At the end of uh, HMS Surprise, when he was delirious, he talked about Jack Aubrey piercing himself with his own weapon and you do not know chastity. Right. But now he's a little bit mourning for the washing away of that side of Jack's character. Yeah. And and this this thing about, you know, kind of what gives people life, what brings them to life, you know, they're... Um, you know, here he's he's reflecting on Jack. Later, we got him reflecting on himself, and I guess a bit of the commentary about Clonford is how he does that as well. That uh, yeah. you know, what's what's the right motivation, not just for our actions in in war, but for living as well. Uh, how yeah, Patrick O'Brien takes us deeper in here. You know, we we kind of started here as they had had their victory, and 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 Jack went from being told essentially there's great success by the admiral originally as he sent him off, and if you fail, you know you're a lifetime on the beach at half pay. Now he's the apple of the admiral's eye. Mm-hmm. Life is all good here back on the Cape, but uh, some news comes in, uh, and the news comes in that the French have taken three more Indiamen. A Royal Navy sloop, the Victor, a Portuguese frigate, the Minerva. And okay, you've gone from the hero Jack and this great action to you better get back out there and bring your stuff. Yeah, you know, this, this is not looking good on me and it's not looking good on us. And Jack shifts his pennant uh, back into it, what O'Brien says, quote, his own Bodicea. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> Just when we thought that he didn't really care about ships anymore. <laughs> right, right. Stephen's worried about him because he didn't, you know, what he was using, sort of the Admiral's big 74 is like, he, you know, Jack just didn't love that ship, didn't really see, it just seemed to be kind of like a, you know, it's just where his meetings were held. At. Yeah. But yeah. we tell Jack still loves ships. He loves the Bodicea. Yeah, and the, the crew had played on that as well, hadn't they? Cap- Captain Elliot had been standing in as captain of the Bodicea yeah. and... Oh, said the crew. Oh, the Commodore always liked it that way. Oh, the Commodore always did. It's like, oh, Captain Aubrey said we should paint the brass bow chasers brown. Yeah, or <laughs> the elegant. crew can tell a mile off. It's, it's hard to live in the shadow, right? So we've drawn together the threads of the campaign, bit of a success from the military side of things, a foothold, you might say, temporarily on La Réunion. And militarily, the pieces are at least somewhat falling into place. and. Now I think we're going to talk about Stephen's role as an intelligence agent, not just in gathering intelligence, but in helping to actively foster the the turning over of public opinion and the turning over of power away from the French and towards the British and towards the empire. Boy, it sounds like a lot to do. Do you think we should take a short break first? I think we should. So I don't know, what beverage should we... Maybe I think it's time to light along the grog. Maybe maybe a half ration and, and the rest at supper, enemy and uh, the day permitting. Right? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> All right. Be right back.
So, I hope you enjoyed your grog. Welcome back to The Lubber's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. And we were talking about Stephen and his role as an intelligence agent and as an agent of regime change in this campaign to try and take back control of Mauritius and La Réunion. Yeah, they, you know, we've seen him in the past, you know, gathering intelligence, analyzing intelligence, you know, advising the higher-ups as to what this might mean, and, and, and in a broad, general way, influencing political affairs in Catalonia and Spain. But now he's here specifically planning to undermine an existing state using money, using propaganda, uh, developing allies. You know, he really is coming into his own, um, a much more advanced kind of intelligence and espionage work. Um, the, one of the moments where I think Jack sees this for the major undertaking that it is, is when uh, there's a, 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 a lurch or a wave and uh, Jack finds Stephen picking up bunches of coins on the cabin floor. And he goes, <laughs> what, what's this? And Stephen rather sarcastically says, I, I believe it's commonly known as money. <laughs> <laughs> More money than Jack's seen in his entire life. Right. One of the things that Stephen wants to emphasize about this is that it, it's all genuine money. It's not forged. He calls out the French for having bought services or intelligence with false coin and false paper. And he even got, there's a little bit of a, a, a wry humorous twist behind the, his, his final remark. He says, the French buying services or intelligence with false coin, that's the kind of thing that gives espionage a bad name. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, and, and I'll have Jack in his innocence says, well, if we pay real money, is it to be presumed we get better intelligence? Jack's asking Stephen. And of course, Stephen says, well, to be honest, the, the, the paid agent and his information aren't that valuable. But um, you know, going and finding someone who, in parenthesis, like Stephen, is a true loyalist to a cause who will risk his life to bring down Bonaparte, that's the real stuff to aim for. And there are several of them, he says, on Reunion. And uh, I have every reason to believe that there are more on Mauritius. Yeah, isn't it interesting? We're sort of back to that professional and personal again, back to motivation again. Here yeah. we are. Stephen's seeking opportunities to, to home in on people's true motivations and recruit them to his cause. And Jack, professionally, with the behavior of his captains, he's got good instincts, but he hasn't really got his finger on the pulse yet. Right. Stephen does another quick odds check with Jack. Jack still puts them as even, but he does worry that the hurricane season is coming in. And a lot of their success at this point, he thinks, is going to be underpinned by being able to blockade the French while they're in port. But with the French in port right at their home base, the British so far from their home base, hurricane season might be tough to keep them in port. It might. So we've got a couple of chapters now where things are beginning to fall into place. We're not yet ready to have the next big feat of arms in taking control of one of these islands. But a few things happen. First of all, Stephen goes ashore in La Réunion to try and make use of his money and make use of his insights into people's motivations he's looking to make contacts by the way he comes back <laughs> not only with good intelligence but some really great coffee and a roasting machine so and Stephen, Stephen is a hipster really well and and as an aside we we'd found out but we you know we don't have time to talk about too much that Killick had uh, told them that uh, jack noticed a particular 
tang in the coffee and Killick said it's probably oh, yes. rats had been in them crapping in the coffee <laughs> and, and Jack was like oh yeah that's, that's that familiar taste so Stephen is fixing that which I love so we've got a roasting machine we've got some great coffee as yet un- right <laughs> unadulterated <laughs> by rats un- unpolluted right. by rats <laughs> and Stephen's getting more and more aligned with Clonfort in terms of the, the work that he does so because Clonfort has local knowledge and he has a local pilot um, Stephen goes aboard the Nereid, which is now under the command of Clonfort, and uh, heads to La Reunion to see what he can do by way of fomenting a bit of loyalty away from the French and towards the British. Yeah, and this insight into Clonfort continues. And so we have Stephen to, mm-hmm. to both analyze that and to narrate it as well. Um, he notices that on Clonfort's ship, when Clonfort gives an order, there's a lot of discussion. There's a lot of suggestions. And Stephen's thinking, you know, I've never seen that on another Royal Navy ship. He suspects that maybe the French might do that because they're lively and articulate, but not in the Royal Navy. And Stephen writes, or I guess O'Brien writes, at some point, Stephen became aware that for Clonfort, he, meaning Stephen, had ceased to be a table companion and it turned into an audience. Mm-hmm. It was quite unlike their friendly discourse of some days before. And presently, Stephen grew sadly bored. Lies or half lies, he reflected, had a certain value in that they gave a picture of what a man would wish to seem. But a very few were enough for that. And then they had a striving, aggressive quality as though the listener had to be bludgeoned into admiration. They were the antithesis of conversation. They can also be embarrassing, he thought. And he's thinking that as Clonfort goes on and on about talking about riding the unicorn that I, we talked about, the narwhal horn, last time. Yeah. And Stephen also learns mm-hmm. from Clonfort's ship surgeon, McAdam, that Stephen had early pointed out how profusely Clonfort sweats in these times of anxiety mm-hmm. and, and was suggesting that maybe there was more of a psychological condition to Clonfort than a physical condition. McAdam being more of a psychological type hadn't picked up on it, but now does and notes that Clonfort sweats really profusely, especially when he's talking about Jack. Um, and Stephen kind of wonders if if Clonford s- sought more of what Stephen calls a more legitimate approval by speaking about the truth rather than his current self-defeating practices, he would be in much better shape. And, and perhaps that would be even better than all the drafts and potions that McAdam and Stephen had talked through about him. Indeed. And I'm not going to make any direct connection at all to members of the British royal family and them trying to speak the truth or not about where they've been in their lives and whether that has any connection to sweating. <laughs> oh. If you've followed any of the stuff going on in the media, you'll know what I'm talking about. Oh, no. Um, and the member of the royal family that we're talking about is a former officer in Her Majesty's Navy as well. Yeah. So, there you go. Very sad. <laughs> Jack had also referred earlier on to the possibility that this is going to be hurricane season. And rather quickly, actually, we get into and out of a hurricane. And considering how much time we spent in the Atlantic storm a book ago, I think O'Brien's going, yeah, you, you, you've all read my descriptions now of life in heavy weather aboard a ship, so I'm not going to go big on the description of the hurricane. But for sure, a hurricane strikes the squadron while they're at sea. And we do get 
a great description. O'Brien writes, the ship was on her beam ends, the darkness was upon them, and the known world dissolved in a vast omnipresent noise. Air and water were intermingled. There was no surface to the sea. The sky vanished and the distinction between up and down disappeared. Disappeared momentarily for those on deck, more durably for Dr. Matron, who having pitched down two ladders, found himself lying on the ship's side. In, in amongst some treacle, if I remember rightly. You know, he said, he, you know, he landed in the darkness puzzled, right? <laughs> I don't think we ever get the sense that the ship is in mortal danger, but it's clearly causing damage and disruption aboard the ship. So it's time to go back to Cape Town. It's time to refit. And once again, Jack's under pressure to get the fleet turned around again. And he has to engage in at least as much corruption as his customary and probably even more corruption than his customary, given that the dockyard people all know that he's got some funds. The dockyard people all know that he needs to get back out there in short order. So he's getting bled white pretty much. There's something else unpleasant for Stephen to deal with in Cape Town, and that's the discipline among the officers that has resulted in a, in a long list of cases that need to be heard by a court-martial. And Jack, as the senior captain, as the Commodore, has to have a part in that because they need enough officers to convene a court-martial. There are accusations against officers by other officers. And this is so gloomy that Stephen and Jack have to turn to music again. And something good does happen in the context of all of this, which is that while they're tuning up their instruments, Jack hears the news that troops have arrived um, on uh, on Rodriguez ready to attack La Reunion. So his plan with Keating can take place. And I'm mentioning this because we get a reference at that point to the fact that even the horrible old leopard has arrived. And the horrible old leopard oh, right. <laughs> is going to be a, a feature in this story a little and a feature in future stories a lot. I want to make one very tenuous connection to our favorite TV show, to The West Wing. Um, Patrick O'Brien does a great job in pedantry and making sure that we always use the strictly correct plural courts martial. And um, this gives me an excuse to point out that this was a lesson taught to all of us West Wing fans by President Josiah Bartlett in episode 18 of season two of the West Wing. Nobody lied. Nobody lied? Nobody. Nobody lied? Is that what you've been saying to yourself over and over again for Look. a year? Leo, a deception of massive proportion. I can't even... He gets a physical twice a year at Bethesda. His doctors are naval officers. Are you telling me that officers are involved in this? Toby. These guys are going to be court-martialed. Nobody... Listen to me. Nobody lied. Nobody was asked to lie. Coercion. Nobody was asked to lie. Officers, the first lady, surgeons, surgeon generals, for all I know. The plural of surgeon general isn't surgeon generals. It's surgeon's general, like attorney's general or court's marshal. And by the way, if you love podcasts and you love following along works of literature, you should check out the West Wing Weekly if you haven't already. It's a really great podcast. And uh, this whole idea of courts martial and surgeons general became a running joke on the West Wing Weekly. So you might like that. And it's this courts martial that uh, it drives Jack a little bit insane because he's eager now to go pick up the troops and get moving. And he has to sit through case after case after case after case. They have a a dinner later uh, afterwards that, as they get ready to move out. And once again, Clonfort seems to, as Jack says, strike the wrong note and continue prating and gets everybody into a bit of an uproar. You know, Jack has to check him again. 
Uh, and Stephen, writing about Clonfort, recalls and, and writes in his journal a phrase from Milton, nothing profits a man like proper self-esteem. It kind of, nothing profits a man like proper self-esteem brought back to mind Jack's thoughts earlier about how he sees his naval success as more luck than any great things of himself. You know, that he was in the right place at the right time and how Clonfort you know, just seems to see it very differently and, and not content with who he is. I think, you know, Jack in some ways, you know, likes himself for who he is. Wants to move on, has some things that he wants to do. Yeah. Um, certainly wants to yeah. go up and raise his flag one day, but still likes himself and doesn't aspire to other things like being a baronet. And we have another author for O'Brien to quote from. We had Dryden a book or two ago, and now we've got Milton again. Yeah, yeah. Milton from Paradise Lost. That's a little ominous sometimes, right? <laughs> you know, Stephen did bangle it a little bit. The original quote was, Off times, nothing profits more than self-esteem grounded on just and right, well-balanced. Mm, good stuff, Milton. There you go. Yeah. So, again, the pieces are coming into place. The troops are ready to move. The ships are being refitted after the hurricane. It's time to go and take the first active step in the campaign and put British boots on the ground on La Reunion. So they head off to Rodriguez to pick up the troops, fortunately with Keating still in command. And who do we encounter around uh, about Rodriguez than our old friend Thomas Pullings? Yeah, this is great. This is great. Stephen trying to sort of get through the crowd of people. Here's his name. Doctor, doctor, keeps walking, puts his head down, and it's Thomas Pullings. Ah, we love to have the band of brothers reforming here. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not going to try and quote any of it, but O'Brien is still giving Pullings his East Anglian dialect speech, which is really nice to read about. And obviously, Pullings is still there as a very down-to-earth, salt-of-the-earth type of character. Such a, such a good guy. So the resources are all in place, but the elements are starting to pick up against Jack's interests and against the interests of the British command. So the surf building on the beach where they're planning to attack La Reunion and they lose several boats. Pullings effectively sacrifices his transport by anchoring it and letting it kind of slew around in the surf so that it provides a bit of breakwater, which it does and eventually is is beaten to pieces in the waves. Um, the troops wow. that do land, even though Clonfort is standing on a mound and waving and exhorting them they've got wet powder and they can't shoot and they have to improvise and keating is pleased that jack's there to direct the improvisation and to give some decisions on what is otherwise a landing that's going a little bit wrong right right they've had this you know really well-developed plan about setting down in different parts and then joining up and they realize now we can't get in here so they have to move to the other side of the island where part of the force was being dropped and thought better if we can't land here to go reinforce them there. Yeah. So they do this little faint maneuver and now we've got troops landing in two places. They do finally get enough troops ashore to be ready for battle. And Keating is ready for this to be his big moment. He sees that yes. there's a, he said, Oh, the French have got very conventional defense. Yeah. Interesting. We're, we've got a regular, you know, r regular attack on a prepared defensive position here. And he's, you know, he spent months and months on an island shooting guinea fowl, training his men, and his force is ready for him to have his his critical moment. 
And in true Patrick O'Brien style, <laughs> it's taken away from him. Yeah, I hate that. He's ready to push go. And, you know, his commander on the ground, you know, that reports up to him says, well, I can't because I just sent Stephen Matron ahead for a parley with the French military and civilian leaders. So it's like, whoa, 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 we're under a flag of truce for the moment. We can't, uh, we can't shoot anybody. And then, you know, Stephen comes back eventually as Keating is gnawing at the bit, knowing that this will come to nothing. And, and I, I love you. You should probably take this here that Keating notifies Jack of the result of, of Stephen's discussions. Yeah, he, he sends a note. We get the content of the note, but you can almost hear the slightly arch tone. My dear Commodore, your friend has disappointed us. He's done us out of our battle. As neat a battle as you could wish to see. We had driven in their pickets at flank their right wing. And then, quite out of order, a capitulation is proposed to avert the effusion of human blood, forsooth. Usual terms, honours of war, sidearms, baggage, personal effects, and so on. Blah, 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 he might have said. If you are satisfied, <laughs> please come ashore to sign, together with your obliged humble servant, H. Keating, Lieutenant Colonel. Which is a fairly formal sign-off. <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> so good old Keating gets his all his warlike professional enthusiasm undercut successfully, honourably, but undercut by Stephen's political manoeuvrings. So typical Patrick O'Brien. I love that. Well, Stephen got his way, and what a what a fabulous job he's obviously done on the island. It fell as soon as they showed up, essentially. Yeah, that's a pretty good step. You could. It's almost say odds beginning to turn in our favor if we're counting numbers of victories, um, occasions when the French military have conceded, occasions when the combined arms efforts and the Stephen Maturin intelligence effort have prevailed, then we score one in the win column, I think, for La Reunion. And pretty much straight away, Jack wants to turn and attack Mauritius. And Envoy Farquhar, who is now Governor Farquhar because he's got an island to govern, agrees. And there's a council of war and he says, I echo the Commodore's words, gentlemen, and I cry, lose not a minute. They have superiority in ships, transports and troops at the ready, captured information on the island's defences, a morale advantage and no countermanding orders. And there's a little foreshadow here that says no orders from any authority unacquainted with the exact state of local conditions can take the guidance of operations from those who are acquainted with them. No new set of staff officers can, for the moment, arrive with a plan of campaign matured in Bombay or Fort William or Whitehall. This is a state of affairs that cannot last. And this is a great speech by a governor, and we don't often get great speeches and great motivation from senior officials. Yeah, so maybe you could say this is a moment when it starts to go a little bit not quite so well. We've already had the hurricane and we've already had the French taking more ships, but things have been building momentum. But at this point, they don't get the go-ahead orders. There are people who want to wait and plan, people who want to check things out with headquarters. So Jack has to come up with his own alternate plan to get things started. And rather than attacking Port Louis, they'll take the Ile de Pass in the southeast of Mauritius. It's the second best port and use it as a base for the landing. And that seems like good strategy. It, it's basically allowing a sort of secondary blockade of uh, of Port Southeast. And Jack decides to send Pym and Clonfort to go and take care of this attack on the Ile de Pass. Stephen asks the question to Jack, is Clonfort really the best choice? And Jack, who I'm sure is both trying to take Clonfort's performance at face value and also 
trying to get past this awkwardness that he's had with with Confort says actually you know Confort's the best choice he's got the local knowledge and that all seems to be settled Stephen's going to go to Mauritius to gather some intelligence to distribute some literature and recruit allies and tries to get Jack talking about the prospect of becoming a baronet <laughs> and I love it we get back, back to the theme of motivation again and Jack tells Stephen that he's not interested in a title he loves his navy rank he's as as, as proud as Nebuchadnezzar about being a post captain but he notes how much the admiral really craves a title Lord, he says, laughing heartily, to think of crawling about St. James's for a ribbon when you're an ancient man past 60. Hey, Mike, what, what kind of ancient is that, eh? Boy, that is ancient past 60. Oh, who can imagine? <laughs> <laughs> so Mauritius is a bit of a tougher nut, isn't it? Stephen has an accident getting on board HMS Nereid, caused in part, I think, by the competition between the captains and their eagerness to get away and their eagerness to get their first... Stephen picks up an injury and gets the chance to spend more time observing Clonfort while Stephen's aboard the Nereid, recuperating as Nereid makes the passage down to Mauritius. So step one of this plan to descend upon Mauritius is to take the fort. And the fort on this little island is taken, but there's a snag. There, there is a snag, and the snag not being of military or tactical matters, but again, motivations and personalities. Yeah. Quite right, Ian, that Pym, it turns out, is making great time. Clonford uh, was a little behind and then had to beat up. And consequently, Pym arrived, took the fort before Clonford could arrive and participate. And Clonford is pretty upset with him and takes it up at the first meeting of captains. And Pym just checks him, as we said earlier, yeah. and says, you know, these matters, it's first come, first serve. Burn. Yeah, a definite burn. But Pym then leaves Clomford in command of the fort and heads back. And now we see Stephen again continuing to watch Clomford. And Clomford starts ranging out from the fort and from his ship, going on all these little raids, some decent raids, some seemingly of no consequence. And every every evening, Clomford has this great big dinners, to celebrate the victories, uh, looks to all of his officers to praise him. And Stephen notes they compare Clonford to Cochrane. They compare Clonford to Jack, to the Commodore. Uh, sometimes they said with a wary look yeah. towards Stephen. And what we don't get, as Stephen's observing, you know, we don't get any of this sense of developing the people, developing the situation, having a strategy in mind. So there's no gunnery practice. There's no saying, okay, now we've got this fort. What do we really do with the batteries? To the point where no drills, no gunnery practice, no regular order, no training, no bringing the military and the naval folks who are are kind of housed there together now uh, under some sort of command as Jack would do. And that leaves them vulnerable. It does. We get the sense that we're being set up for something <laughs> something to happen that's going to reverse the fortunes yeah. of Clomfort and Pym. It's a shame here. We we I think we started out being expected to like Pym and to think that he's a steady, regular, competent officer. At some point earlier on, Jack had said, you know, I wish I had a dozen Pims. But Pym's trying to play Clomfort at his own game a little bit with this competitiveness, and he's not making great decisions about leaving Clomfort 
back there in the fort in command and things are not going so well. Things are not going so well aboard the Nereid either because Stephen, although he's now recovering from his injury, has has a bit of a, a disagreement with McAdam. They've been fairly friendly so far as colleagues and with the connection of Ireland. And it's funny, we get into a conversation about Stephen's laudanum habit. And Mike, I can't figure out whereabouts in the canon I was first introduced to the fact that Stephen uses laudanum, but Stephen's a, a, a drug user. I'm sure this isn't quite the first time, but I think I think it's been in passing. And But it's, this is the first time that it's being called out as something that Stephen has to own up to and that he depends on. Yeah, you've got a, you know, a little bit of uh, Sherlock Holmes yeah. 7% solution, especially in this situation where Stephen, being the not great patient that he always is, uh, has harsh words for McAdam and calls him out for being a drunk. And McAdam calls Stephen out for his laudanum habit, which Stephen had mm-hmm. no idea he knew about. And he's a bit defensive. He reflects to himself that, you know, the, yeah. the classic dependence, self-defense is, this isn't harming me. Yep. I'm under control. I could stop it anytime I like. What does he say? He says, I, I rarely take a thousand drops a trifle compared to with what your true opium eater's dose is um, or what I used to take in Diana's day. So we're learning after the event that he was pretty deeply into you know, managing his his mood with with opium when he was in the depths of his his uh, his despair over the relationship yeah. with Diana I can refrain whenever I choose I take it only when my disgust is so great that it threatens to impede my work that's a fairly big admission to himself and he then tries to reflect that back on McAdam and says I'm going to ask whether yes. disgust for oneself or one's fellows is common among people in Belfast. <laughs> he wants to ask McAdam whether those patients found it incapacitating. And then Stephen really starts some deep reflection here about this disgust. You know, this disgust, as you just said, for himself, for for fellow human beings, for the process of living. Yeah, this is really this is, is getting dark. <laughs> you know, Stephen kind of goes on to say that his own disgust, all of this disgust, these different kinds, keep growing. Um, even the guy that saved him when he got sort of yeah. dropped in between the boats saved his life. He says, you know, I thanked him, but I didn't really feel anything. And starts to wonder if his own humanity is being drained away by this feeling of disgust that it keeps growing. And, and that the thing yeah. that keeps him going is this loathing for Bonaparte, that that's kind of like a stimulant for him. But I guess maybe what we're doing here is balancing out the fact that Stephen was was the one with the pure motivation, with the real righteous, indignant anger against Bonaparte yeah. and the desire to tear Bonaparte's corrupt structures to pieces. But even that motivation isn't really pure because it's got behind it this 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 theme of disgust. Maybe part of that's personal to Stephen and his view of himself, and part of it's I think to do with his identity as somebody involved in intelligence. At this moment, we get some relief for Stephen. As uh, the sailors all say, Doctor, Doctor, come on deck, there's a mermaid. And of course, he's not a mermaid. Right. And there's this hilarious thing. McAdam points Stephen to a conversation where a couple sailors are about to come to blows about whether or not the manatee or dugong, they said, you know, manatees are, are east of of Africa and dugongs are west of Africa in the Indian Ocean there and slightly different. Stephen gives us a little natural philosophy lesson there and gives McAdam one. But they're they're ready to fight on whether she had a comb <laughs> or a glass in her hand. But thank God, Stephen, in the midst of his existential crisis, hollers down, 
you know, what's the matter with all of you? She had a hairbrush in her hand. We've delved deeper into the tortured psyche of both Clonford and of Stephen. We've met the mermaid that's really a manatee. I think the real world of the the action in this campaign and some of the instability in the foundations that's already been present is going to start to show itself because the French appear on the horizon. I really noticed that every other time the French have hove into view on the horizon, they've been seen by a lookout and reported directly to Jack and Jack's been straight up the rigging with a glass in his hand. That's the pattern of encountering the French. Every time. It's really unnerving that we're getting this reported in Jack's absence. This is a point of view of being in this action with the Nereid and Clonfort on the scene. And it's really unnerving that, for me anyway, the the French appear with these three ships, the Bellon, the Minerve, the Victor, and also the two Indiamen, and Jack's nowhere. And all the way through the description of this action against the fort, I'm thinking, oh gosh, where's Jack? And nobody... None of the characters at any point say, if only the Commodore were here. But as a reader, I feel really unnerved reading this account of of, uh, action, an action that's clearly not going well. And I really feel the absence of Jack Aubrey and his insight and his tactical decision-making and his cunning and his flair. For sure. And, And the contrast is so stark. Where's our acting commander here? Where's Clonford? And he's off with one of his raiding parties, Nobody's kind of paying any attention. Everybody's off on shore. Does he marshal his forces and put a plan together? No. He says, it's moment of glory for me. Jumps in his boat, not realizing you still have all your troops that are, you know, or or many of them, the vitally important ones, back on shore. Get them together. But no, no. I'm there. Miraculous things are going to happen. We're going to slay the unicorn. Doesn't matter about all. And you can tell there's there's a, there's a moment of hubris that is oh. bound to be overturned because as the British forces finally gather themselves and prepare to attack, Comfort turns to Stephen and says, "Doctor Maturin, I believe we may show you something to be compared to what you have seen with Commodore Aubrey." And I'm almost face palming at that moment, thinking, "Okay, mate, you're 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 in for it now." And a few sentences later, the other characteristic thing, what happens when an action goes awry for one side or another, somebody runs aground. (laughs) So a few sentences later, we get this really bold statement, the serious, hurrying to close the gap and misjudging her swing, struck hard and grounded on the rocky edge. At the same moment, the French frigates and the shore batteries open fire. And like at that point, the game is up and the story's going to go on and there's this really drawn out agonizing partial defense partially re-improvised set of counterattacks between Clonfort and the other boats the boats have gone aground they end up getting burned so that the french can't capture them it's just a miserable miserable situation it's not even a rapid reversal of a defeat it's a defeat that's drawn out and painful and costly And at any point, they might have tried to snatch it back, but it's all futile. Well, it's just a series of self-inflicted wounds by these captains. And it would almost be too much if we didn't know that, in fact, O'Brien had picked this right up from history. And I just can't can't imagine watching this in real time to see... Mm. what could have been, you know, to see defeat snatched from the jaws of victory, if you will. And with Jack not present. And it, it clearly takes a bit of an effort for Jack to 
keep up his optimistic air because there, there's a messenger vessel that with Maturin aboard goes to La Réunion to, to pass the message to Aubrey about the losses and about the failed attack. And it's really unnerving that the French had a new battery that they managed to arm and equip and they managed to turn their fire on the Iphigenia and the Sirius. They were busy trying to heave Pym's frigate off the reef and there were some ugly scenes between the captains themselves. Pym realised that the Sirius couldn't be saved so therefore the Sirius was set on fire. And even this ship, the Iphigenia, is lost after she sends Stephen and her midshipmen to take the news to Jack. Jack manages to keep a brave face on it. Why, Stephen, there you are, he says as Stephen walks into the cabin. How happy I am to see you. Another couple of hours and I should have been off to Flat Island with Keating and his men. But what's amiss? And Stephen has to take a breath and sit down. Yeah. Before he tells the story, the attack on Port Southeast has failed. The Nareed is taken. The Sirius and the Magician are burned. And by now, the Iphigenia and the Ile de Pass fort itself will certainly have surrendered. (sighs) <sighs> but Jack's a grown-up these days. Right. Jack's got his stuff together. Well, he says, Minerve, Bellon, Astre, Venus, Manche, together with the captured Nareed and the captured Iphigenia, that makes seven to one. But we have seen longer odds, I believe. So we're back to odds counting and everything's everything's gone against us. The, the tables are tilted oh my gosh, dramatically in the favour of the French now. The goosebumps go up and I could hear the music swelling in the background. <laughs> it's like, Jack's coming back here. Yeah. Really comes back to me as I've read it again. This is almost a story about war and the um, the campaign didn't, wasn't a romantic campaign with uh, a big climactic conflict and then a rejoicing triumphant victory. There was a long drawn out preparation and a couple of false steps and then a a defeat that was drawn out and bloody and anguishing and incompetent and marked by uncertainty and bad decision making all the way and i think that's probably real life and i i bet that patrick o'brien's thinking of the other classic bits of military storytelling so i'm going to indulge in one more tangent back into the rest of the world of literature um we know that the aeneid by virgil is one of the most alluded to classical texts that Patrick O'Brien likes to go back to. And if post-captain and HMS Surprise were O'Brien following in the footsteps of Jane Austen, maybe in this really quite hard-nosed telling of the futility and the outcome of war, he's picking up on the Aeneid. So I'm not going to claim to be a great classical scholar, but I dug into the plot summary, (laughs) the Sparknote summary of Virgil's Aeneid, and there are some parallels with the story that we've had so far in the Mauritius Command. We've had women as a distraction getting in the way. We've had bad omens. We've had friendly and then unfriendly countrymen. We've had burning ships and we've had weather. So this is me extracting from the Sparknote summary of the middle passage of the Aeneid. Assured by the gods that a glorious future awaited him in Italy, Aeneas sets sail with a fleet containing the surviving citizens of Troy. Twice they attempted to build a new city, only to be driven away by bad omens and plagues. Harpies, creatures that are part women and part bird, cursed them, but they also encountered friendly countrymen unexpectedly. Finally, after the loss of Anchises, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, and about a terrible weather, they made their way to Carthage. 
Impressed by Aeneas's exploits and sympathetic to his suffering, Dido, sounds a bit like Diana, a Phoenician princess, falls in love with Aeneas. They live together as lovers for a while until God reminds Aeneas of his duty to found a new city. He determines to set sail once again. By the way, Dido kills herself, and in the Purcell opera she sings a stunning song, but never mind. As the Trojans make for Italy, bad weather blows them to Sicily, where they hold funeral games for the dead Anchises. The women, tired of the voyage, begin to burn the ships and the downpour puts the fires out. And I wonder if O'Brien, the classical scholar, read this account of the Mauritius campaign in real life and thought, hey, <laughs> there's some really great military storytelling here. And I wonder if that that overlap drove him to tell the story mm. in the way that he has told it. So we're probably at the darkest point of the novel now. Even though Stephen's putting a brave face on it, Stephen has his doubts. Stephen, looking at Jack, thinks his face is darker than I've ever seen it, observes Stephen, looking at him from the taffrail. Up until now, he has borne these reversals with a singular magnanimity, greater by far than I had looked for. Not a word about Clonfort's disastrous folly, nothing but sympathy for his wounds, and a hope that the French hospital may set him up. No reflection upon Pym's dogged stupidity. Yet there is no greatness of mind without its limits. Is this the breaking point? Is it indeed? I think there's only one way to find out, Mike. Well, I have to ask you, Ian, what do you say to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien next week? Mike, with all my heart. Nobody's that dumb. <laughs> Nobody's that stupid, right? And and so amused by their own idiocy. That's ah. Uh. <laughs>